Well, I hope you had a good afternoon. Maybe some of you got a little bit of rest. I did. Um, not many Saturdays I can chill out and certainly don't know many spaces and places as beautiful as this. The weather was cooperative. I hope you had a measure of opportunity to get some recreation, some rest, some fun, some competition. Um, and I hope you had a good afternoon. I sure did. Um, join me in uh, Second Chronicles again, chapter 14, um, just as a kind of a bridge connector. Um, we're talking about maximizing your life in ministry. And the subject this morning, the ingredient, the convictional priority is seeking. Seeking is intentional and impactful pursuing. You're intentionally seeking, pursuing, and it will result in impactful living as it relates to your fitness for and usefulness in the kingdom of God. You have it in you. If you're born again, you have the spirit of God in you and by seeking the Lord for relational connection, spiritual provision, life satisfaction, you'll be a difference maker. You'll be an impact player. And if there's anything I wanna leave with you as men at Redeemed South Bay is what you've heard already reiterated, uh, Jeff, this evening with the psalm. You're created by God for his glory. You're not a waste. You are designed for purpose. And uh, that purpose is profoundly important, not only to heaven, because ultimately it's unto him and for him. You live for his glory, but it's profoundly important for the people with whom you have to do. Um, every man in the room Every young man in the room has influence, for good or not so good. And it all begins with seeking. I wanted to uh, just give you some spaces to look, and we're not going to spend time in this section tonight, but I didn't want to leave you this weekend without giving you the opportunity to consider Second Chronicles 14. The antithesis of Rehoboam's story is his grandson's story. And the story of King Asa, grandson of Rehoboam, is in 2 Chronicles 14. And Asa, his name means healer. And after a season of significant division and national disturbance and conflict, God raised up the healer, Asa, grandson of Rehoboam. And I just want to highlight some things, and, and this is really what I want to encourage you to do. On your own time, I'd like to encourage you to examine 14, 15, and 16 of 2 Chronicles in answering the question, what is the theology of seeking? What does seeking involve? Because in this section of the Chronicles is the story of a man who was a God seeker. I'll give you an example. This is uh, verse 1, chapter 14. Abijah slept with his fathers. That's the son of Rehoboam. They buried him in the city of David, and his son Asa, grandson of Rehoboam, became king in his place. Now notice these words. This, the land, was undisturbed for 10 years during his days. Enjoyed peace. You're going to hear undisturbed a few times. And Asa did good and right in the sight of the Lord his God. Why? Ground or reason for the claim he did good and right, he removed, for he removed the foreign altars, high places, 
tore down the sacred pillars, cut down the Asherim. In other words, he removed all competition and rivals to God and commanded Judah to seek the Lord God of their fathers and to observe the law and the commandments. He also removed the high places and the incense altars from all the cities of Judah and the kingdom, here it is again, was undisturbed under him. They were at peace. He built fortified cities in Judah since the land was undisturbed. And there was no one at war with him during those days because the Lord had given him rest. Now listen to verse 7. Ground a reason for the rest and the pleasant season of peace. For he said to Judah, let us build these cities and surround them with walls and towers, gates and bars. In other words, there's still vulnerability. The enemy will ultimately come. Conflict will be inevitable. But the land is still ours. Now watch this. Because we have sought the Lord our God. We have sought him. And he has given us rest on every side. So they built and they what? Prospered. Now, it's just a little highlight. Chapter 15 dials it in. Chapter 16 introduces the, the verse I quoted when I was praying at the end of our session. Verse 9, the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the whole earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. So you have this idea of seeking God. And Asa is the model of that, his leadership of it. And you're going to see the ingredients, the characteristics that define a God seeker. So impact and influence, maximum living begins with God seeking. And God seeking results in blessing and benefit, peace and productivity. And so that's a section you can examine. I just wanted to highlight it for you because... I don't know how long it'll be again until someone mentions the subject we were speaking about today, but I didn't want to leave you without introducing you to a positive example that's worth your time and reflection. All right, Matthew chapter 5, that's where we are tonight. The subject tonight is intentional and impactful influencing. Unintentional and impactful pursuing, that's seeking. But this is engaging, intentional and impactful influencing. The subject tonight is salt. The uh, contrast that I want you to consider is one of two outcomes as it relates to your life, and that is influence or impotence. This is a call for that ought to encourage you, but it's a call for you to impact your world for good. Benefiting a broken world is blatantly Christian. It's consistent with the call of Christ. We are not impotent. We're not to be withdrawing and wishing for a better and different world or surviving until God makes a new one. We're supposed to be impacting the world in which he has sovereignly placed us. You are here for such a time as this. The benefit of growing darkness is it highlights light. It highlights right because it's distinctively different. I served for 27 years as a pastor in Birmingham, Alabama. 
Birmingham is in the Bible Belt. It's a Christianized community. Everybody, everybody's overstated, but generally people think they're Christians. And it's sometimes different or difficult to distinguish because Southern genteel behavior and doing the right thing, being kind, being gracious, being hospitable is cultural in the South. It's a pleasant place to live other than the humidity. It's a great place to raise your children. I enjoyed the South, though I grew up in the Northeast. I really did enjoy being a pastor in a Southern community. But the challenge was to get them lost before they knew they needed to be saved. It's not such a big challenge in our culture. We're different and we need to be different. And instead of withdrawing from a broken and fallen world, we've been commissioned to engage it. The culture is destructive and rapidly declining. Anybody want to disagree with that? <laughs> and by the way, let me just share with you, these are virtues of a healthy culture, sociological study. This is what culture looks like when it's healthy. And I'm gonna give you seven words, honesty. Cultures that are healthy tell the truth. How do you think we're doing? Integrity. Cultures that are healthy have the virtue of integrity. That is what we say we are in public, we really are. What we represent on Instagram and Facebook is reality. How do you think we're doing? Third cultural virtue of a healthy society is morality. We acknowledge moral standards and we adhere to them. Fourth characteristic is security. We are safe to walk down the street at night. The fifth characteristic and virtue of a healthy culture sociologically is unity. That is, people are committed to harmony and shared values and priorities. Sixth characteristic is what they call community. That is, people are connected in productive and relational community. And number seven, stability. People have a sense of calm and anticipation, a kind of cultural predictability. They're secure. Now by these metrics, I think you would have to agree that this culture is not healthy. And what's stunning about our culture, any objective observation is the rapidity of the decline. I mean, the, the pace of transforming negative change in our culture is astounding. Is the church engaged in culture and is the church impacting society? Listen to Yale professor Louis Dupree. Quote, goodbye Christianity, he writes. The West appears to have said its definitive farewell to a Christian culture. Christianity has become an historical factor subservient to a secular culture. Now listen to this. Rather than functioning as the creative power it once was, Christianity has been absorbed and dominated in the West. End quote. And you know what? He made that observation 24 years ago. Think it's less true today? Well, you say, I thought you wanted to encourage me. <laughs> I do. And I want to call you to a conviction and a commitment 
That involves living out who you are. Because you are something. And if you are something that Jesus says you are, your life is guaranteed to mean something in the world in which you live. I want you to look with me at uh, Matthew chapter 5 for a part of the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher that has ever lived. This is the king of everything talking about the reality of his kingdom. This is the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. This is Jesus calibrating reality. This is a calibrating reality connect correction. Because you're going to hear him say, you have heard it said, but I say unto you. You have heard it said, but I say unto you. So he's correcting and allowing people to understand what they haven't understood and must understand as it relates to the kingdom of God. In essence, he's saying, let me tell you how it really is. You've heard it this way, but let me tell you how it is. And so recognizing that the people to whom he came to minister and redeem, he gives them a calibration and a reality correction. And he begins in verse 1 with the multitude. And when he saw the multitudes, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now, just a word about sitting down. Rabbis taught sitting down. And it was a signal that they were about to speak with rabbinic authority. So sitting down is a statement which is to say what Jesus is about to say is authoritative and official, like a judge sitting or like a king enthroned or, as the Catholics say, ex cathedra. When the Pope sits and speaks, they say he has divine inspired authority. It's that idea. Jesus is not Catholic. He's the king of kings, sitting down, speaking with authority. This is the truth. This is the creator, sitting on a mountain throne. And I want you to notice one other thing worth noting. It's a figure of speech, verse 2. And opening his mouth, he began to teach them, saying. Now listen, if I'm going to teach you, I've got to open my mouth. But it's more than opening my mouth to talk. This was a figure of speech to communicate, this is from the heart. This is passionate. These are weighty words. He's speaking critical and essential, absolute kingdom truth. That's what they're about to hear. And he begins with a nine times declaration of how to be blessed. Kingdom truth number one relates to how to be blessed. Nine times, blessed are the Poor in spirit, verse 3, verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, verse 5, blessed are the gentle, verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, verse 7, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the peacemakers, verse 9, verse 10, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, verse 11, Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Blessing. This is what attracts the blessing of God. This is how to be blessed in my kingdom. This is absolute authoritative reality as it relates to the kingdom of God. And every Christian is adopted into the family of God and is a citizen in the kingdom of God. This is not just for the multitudes he spoke to. This is for every citizen of the kingdom of God of which, over which Jesus rules and reigns. 
And if you're a Christian under his lordship and leadership, you are a citizen of said kingdom. Verse 13, he moves from how to be blessed, our focus tonight, on how to be a blessing. Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. And if the salt has become tasteless, how will it be made salty again? It is good for nothing anymore except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Verse 14, you're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do men light a lamp and put it under a peck measure, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Global blessing. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Two figures, salt and light, to illustrate and indicate and to declare that as kingdom citizens, you're to be a blessing by having a positive and impactful influence by salt and by light, those figures, those symbols, you leave a mark in the culture in which you live. We are to be a blessing, and that blessing is related to how salty we are and how bright we are. Now, I don't have time, or I'm not going to take the time to talk about light. I'm going to talk about salt. Salt and light. We're going to focus on salt, and I'm going to argue that this reality symbol, this is an impact reality. Salt is intentional and impactful influence. That's what verse 13 says. You are the salt of the earth. Salt is impactful Salt has influence when applied to anything. And in salt, unless it becomes tasteless, in which case it's good for nothing. So with the, the present active indicative you are, Jesus declares an everyday and everywhere reality. You are. Did you hear that? You are. The salt. The definite article means there isn't any other. Kingdom citizens are the exclusive salt of the earth. Everywhere, everybody. Jesus declares an everyday and everywhere reality for the Christian. You are the salt of the earth. There is no other. The earth means you benefit everyone, everywhere, unless you're not salty. In which case, you're good for nothing, he says. Good for nothing to what? The culture. You don't bless them. You don't bless the people with whom you're engaging. And as a matter of fact, you're good for nothing except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot, which is also a figure of speech. To be treated with disrespect and devalued. And I'm going to argue that the contempt that people have for Christians is fundamentally not because what we believe, not because they disagree with us initially, but because they don't respect us. So I'm going to say it one more time. The king is declaring how to be a blessing to the whole hurting, broken world. And listen, gentlemen, because the world is broken as humanity is hurting, every Christian as a kingdom citizen should have a compelling conviction. I am something. I am the salt of the earth. And therefore, I have potential impact by living up and living out 
the reality, living up to and living out the reality of what it means to be the salt of the earth. So my focus tonight is maximizing your impact and influence, being a blessing in a world that is desperately needy by manifesting the qualities of salt symbolized in this figure given to help us understand how to be what Jesus says we are. There are going to be four things that salt involves. Jesus is calling you to be four things. I'm going to give them to you at the outset, then I want to unpack them. Number one, salt is a picture of purity. Number two, it's a powerful preservative. Number three, salt is a provider of pleasure. It's a seasoning. And number four, it's a prompter of thirst. Salt makes you thirsty. Remember, you are these things, and therefore you need to be these things. You need to be a salty Christian, and as a result, your life will be valuable and impactful and useful. Otherwise, it's good for nothing. Let me give you a bit of background before we examine these four characteristics. In the context, so when Jesus was talking, what would the hearers be hearing? In the context of the culture to which Jesus said these words, salt was highly valued in the ancient world. The Greeks called salt divine. The Romans had a kind of jingle in Latin, and they said there's nothing more useful than the sun and salt. It was called white gold, and it was rare. Taxes and wages were often paid in salt. Often Roman soldiers were paid in salt, and thus came the concept not worth is salt, not worth getting paid. This is the idea of someone who didn't soldier in a productive and worthy way. One of the greatest compliments at that time when Jesus made this statement, one of the greatest compliments you could give someone was to call someone the salt of the earth. Because it meant they're living a worthwhile and meaningful life. They're a solid citizen and their life matters. We even use it in our culture sometimes. He's the salt of the earth. He's a good guy, solid citizen. That's the kind of the flavor of it when we say it. So salt was understood to be valuable and useful. And when you called someone the salt of the earth, you were saying they were very valuable, very useful, rare and important. So Jesus is saying, and gentlemen, I'll start with this. You are the salt of the earth. You're valuable. You're useful. You're incredibly important to the world in which you have been entrusted. So the first quality that we want to unpack tonight is the quality of purity. Quality number one regarding salt involves purity. Because culturally, when Jesus said these words, not only valuable, not only useful, not only rare, but it was connected to purity. Salt, when it was refined, was brilliant white. It glistened in the sun. And the Romans said salt was the purest of all things because it came from the purest of all things, the sun and the sea. Pythagoras, 580 B.C., when he was born, 500 B.C., when he died, said salt is born of the purest of parents, the sun and the sea. Primitive offerings were used 
Primitive offerings were offered to the gods with salt, symbolizing purity. Even Levitical law, Leviticus 2.13, every oblation, Moses said, of your meat offering, you shall season with salt. Listen to 2 Kings chapter 2, 19 through 22, where the prophet Elisha uses salt as an ingredient and symbol of purifying power. You'll feel the picture and flavor of it. It helps you understand the nuance and force of salt as it was understood in Old Testament culture. So this is 2 Kings 2. Then the men of the city, the city's Jericho, said to Elisha, Behold now, the situation of this city is pleasant. Jericho was known as the city of palms. It was an oasis. It was a watering hole in the desert. As my Lord can see, the situation is pleasant, but the water is bad. It's impure. And the land is unfruitful. That means barren. And he, Elisha, said, Bring me a new jar and put salt in it. So they brought it to him, the jar, and he went out to the spring of water and he threw salt in it. And he said, Thus says Yahweh, I have purified these waters. There shall not be from them death or unfruitfulness any longer. So the waters have been purified to this day. New creation vessel. Imagine us, new creations of God, possessing salt, pouring salt into a barren world and a bad culture has a purifying effect. So as the salt of the earth, you are connected intrinsically to purity. The first thing you must do to have impact and eternal influence is to calibrate the culture by giving them an inspiring picture of purity. As a kingdom Christian, as a kingdom citizen, you are, and I am, to be, have a purifying ingredient and effect on the culture by displaying as a model what morality looks like. We're to be a picture of purity. Let me put it this way. As the salt of the earth, you're to be a standard by which the world measures right and wrong. The Christian is to be in the world, but not of the world, John 17, keeping himself unspotted by the world, James 1.27, and providing a living, real-time picture and standard for the world of what's right and wrong. You're the salt of the earth. You're a picture of purity. William Barclay writes, the Christian must be the person who holds aloft the standard of moral purity in speech and in conduct. I love this statement. The Christian is to make the best seem credible. Paul wrote to the Christian Christians in Titus chapter 2, in all things show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified sound in speech which is above reproach so that the opponent will be put to shame because they have nothing bad to say about us. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Let me give you some categories to focus on as it relates to purity, biblical purity. As a picture of purity, we must be pure in four critical ways. Number one, speech. Number two, conduct. 
Number three, attitude. And number four, motive. Ephesians chapter four, speech. By the way, you, you, I'm going to quote this verse. You're probably familiar with it. Colossians 4, 6, Paul writes, Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with what? Salt. What does salt symbolize? Purity of speech. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. Now, you know Ephesians. Ephesians is, I'm bombastically blessed, chapters 1 through 3, and therefore I ought to live in a worthy way consistent with the weightiness of what God has done for me. You ought to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you have. That's the context. 4, 5, and 6 unpacks the conduct of a worthy walk consistent with the bountiful, bombastic blessings of God, chosen before the foundation of the world, ransomed and redeemed by the blood of Christ, inheriting the promise of God for the future, gifted with the Holy Spirit, reconciled to God, though I was dead in my sins, lavishly enthroned in Christ, in the heavenlies, bombastic. This is, in part, what is expected of a transformed Christian as a kingdom citizen. And I'm going to focus on the word speech. Verse 29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. Let's talk unwholesome. Spoiled, impure. Something foul. Something rotten. Let no rotten speech, spoiled speech, foul speech proceed from your mouth. That's an imperative of command. But only such a word as is good for edification. Edification means a word that builds somebody up. I like soul-strengthening words. Words that build up strengthen somebody's soul. So no rotten, impure words, only strengthening Words for the soul should proceed out of your mouth according to the need of the moment that it might give grace, that's goodness and delight, to those who hear. So, as a Christian, we are to model with our words soul-strengthening speech, not rotten, soul-destructive speech. You live in a culture, we live in a culture that's rude, vile, harsh, hurtful. People bully people with words, and it's to me like road rage. You're in a car, you think you can do things that otherwise you would never do if you weren't in a car. In like manner, if you're on the internet, you say things that you otherwise would never say if you were face to face with a person. <coughs> no unwholesome words. How many do you get to say? None. Only the words that build up. Only the words that encourage and advance and strengthen. Only words when they're heard, timely offered, that give grace. They elevate. They bring delight. They bring goodness. They bring benefit. Pure speech is noble speech and edifying speech. Look, uh, same spirit of the, this thought of speech. Look down at verse 3 of chapter 5. Paul begins by saying we're to be imitators of God as beloved children, housed in that imitating of God and living as a Christian should live. Verse 3, do not, excuse me, verse 4, but there must be no filthiness, 
and silly talk. Filthiness is obscenity. It's a word for general. It's, it's dirty speech. It's foul language. We would call it obscenity. We would say cussing. Christians and cussing are a contradiction. I mean, it's common in our culture. You have cussing pastors. You have cussing Christians. Biblically, salty Christians. It's funny because we use salty speech almost the opposite in our culture. Right? That guy's got salty language. Salty language, biblically, is pure speech. It's not filthy. It's not obscene obscenities. It's not cussing. It's not ignoble speech. You're a child or the son of God. You're the prince in the kingdom, and you represent the king. Talk like that. No filthiness. Silly talk is morologia. Moron, moronic speech. Silly talk. I put in my notes tabloid talk. The shallow stuff. The Kardashian talk. You know what I'm, I'm, I'm referring to? Hollow, shallow, meaningless. No silly talk. And then there's this, and no coarse jesting. Coarse jesting is sexual innuendo. It's when you say one thing that has an overtone of an inappropriate thing. No coarse jesting. Noble speech, edifying and noble. Number two, conduct. Look at verse three. Do not let immorality, that's the word pornea. Pornea is not only graphic images you can witness on the internet, but it involves every form of sexual immorality, violating the boundaries of intimacy prescribed by the word of God, holy, and it's in the context of marriage that you can live undefiled. The marriage bed, Hebrews 13, is undefiled, which means it's pure. But outside of the marriage bed, it's impure. So no immorality. Let no immorality or impurity or greed. Greed has a materialistic mindset. So there's impurity associated with materialism. Even be named among you as is proper among saints. The conduct that is pure as a Christian is conduct that is moral and honorable. Number three, attitude. You see this at the end of verse four, the silly talk which is not, and of course jesting which are not fitting, look at the end of verse four, but rather the giving of thanks. That has to do with attitude that's grateful, you're positive, you're Peaceful. Let, let me give you a verse to write down. Mark 9, 50. I'll quote it for you. Jesus talking. Salt is good. But if salt becomes unsalty, with what will it be? What will you make it salty again? Listen to this. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Has to do with relational attitudes and, and positive and peaceful behavior. Look over at Philippians chapter 2. And I'll flavor this a little more for you. Talking about the conduct of a Christian that pleases the Lord. Verse 14, do all things. I want you to, I don't know if you write in your Bible, I do. I circled the word all, highlighted it. Do all things without grumbling. 
Grumbling is complaining. Matter of fact, the, the Greek word is a, is a word. It's not even a word that you would pronounce. It's a, it's a sound. It's what grumblers do. Do all things without grumbling and without disputing. Disputing means you're not argumentative. You're peaceable. Grumbling means you're not a complainer. You're positive. You promote attitudes that are pleasing and peaceable. Look at verse 15. That you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent. Think pure. Children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. He's using the second figure of light, but it, you could, he could have said, you appear as salt in the world. It's the same idea. So this has to do with purity of speech, purity of conduct, purity of attitude, and finally, purity of motive. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, chapter 2 rather, verse 5, Paul wrote, I never came with flattering speech nor with a pretext for greed, nor for the glory of men. He's talking about his motives, and you can look at it later, First Thess 2. He says, I didn't come flattering. You know what flattery is. Flattery is telling you, by way of motive, what you want to hear, so you will give me what I want. Flattery is verbal manipulation. I pump you up to take something from you. Paul said, I didn't use my speech to elevate you to get something from you. It was pure in its motive. It wasn't, I didn't come with a pretext for greed. I didn't want your stuff. And I didn't come for the glory of men so that you would elevate me. I didn't want something from you. I didn't manipulate you. And I didn't do it for me. I did it for the glory of God. Someone has written, Christians need to be intelligently unselfish. Here's a sobering proverb, you can note this. This is instead of being a blessing, it's denying people a blessing. This is Proverbs 25, 26. Like a trampled spring and a polluted well is a righteous man who gives way before the wicked. Not pure water, not a blessing, corrupted. Listen, gentlemen, the process, discipleship, let's just give it a definition. Discipleship, Fellowship, Jesus Christ. Disciples are learners. Follow me, Jesus said. If you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, you become like Christ. And discipleship is the process of becoming who Jesus would be if he were you. And let me tell you who the Bible says Jesus is. Hebrews 7, 26. He was holy, innocent, undefiled, and separated from sinners. You know what that equals? Pure. 1 John 3, 3, everyone who fixes their hope on Jesus purifies himself just as he is pure. I know it was trendy years and years ago. What would Jesus do? But I'll tell you, that's a biblical idea. What would Jesus say? What would Jesus do? Because Jesus, as the pure one, would be pure in, in, in word, deed, and action. So quality number one, you're to be a picture of purity. 
The world should know what's right and wrong because of what they see and what they hear from Christians. Number two, as the salt of the earth, you're to be a powerful preservative. Turn over with me to Luke chapter 14. Luke 14. The second quality that salt was connected with was preservation. Salt had the quality of maintaining and protecting and preserving the value of things. Listen, before refrigeration, salt was commonly used to keep things from going bad. You salted meat, you kept it from rotting, from decaying. Without it, good and valuable things were rapidly corrupted. Salt was valuable because it slowed corruption. It slowed spoilage. Listen, salt ultimately couldn't prevent decay, but it could delay decay. And in a similar way, Christians, by their presence, will prevent and inhibit society's corruption and evil's rotting influence. Listen, all it takes for culture to decline is good men to do nothing, right? All it takes is for Christians not to be salty, to not be engaged, and to be potent. I'm going to give you two words that are going to come out of the text we're looking at that makes salt powerfully influential by way of preservation. Two words. One is potency. How salty is it? And proximity. Is it on it or in it? Look at uh, Luke chapter 14, verse 34. Therefore, Jesus says, salt is good. And then he goes on to say what you've heard before. But if even salt has become tasteless, that's impotent, not potent. With what will it be seasoned? Difficult to recover potency. Verse 35, it is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. Now look up for a minute. Useless for the soil. Salt, when properly dosed, is a fertilizer. It helps things grow. Too much salt kills. The right amount of salt promotes growth. The manure pile, before you had flush toilets, you had uh, canisters of salt and spoons or little shovels that were used to pour over the manure in order to do what? Curb corruption, like a disinfectant. So when you read the words, it's good for nothing, useless even for the soil as a promoter of growth or the manure pile as an inhibitor of corruption, it's just thrown out. And two things about the soil and the manure pile. It has to be in the soil and it has to be on the manure pile for salt to have an effect. It can't be in the canister and it can't be in the container. It has to be out of the salt shaker, somebody has said, and in the world. I want you to notice verse 34, therefore. Do you see that? That's a connection word. The reason Jesus says salt is good is he's connecting salt and its cleansing power and its promoting of growth to something he's just said. 
Salt is good, therefore salt is good. Contextually, salt that is good has to do with what he just said. The paragraph that precedes, beginning in verses 25 through 33, involves biblical discipleship. Christ's first discipleship. Look at verse 26. And if someone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Verse 33, whoever, so therefore no one of you can come and be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Therefore, salt is good. Salty, salt that is good is Jesus over everything Christianity, over my best friends, over my family, over my people and my passions, over my possessions. Christ over all things discipleship is the salt that's good. Christ over everything. Good salt is an I pick and prioritize Christ over everything. I'm committed to him over everyone else. As a matter of fact, if you compare my affection and passion for him, it's as if I'm hating everyone else. There's no competition. Listen, you're, if you're a Jesus first disciple, you're a salty disciple. Salty and high potency influence Christianity is Christ first Christianity, and that's not tasteless. That's good for the soil. That promotes growth, and that's good for the culture that's corrupt. It inhibits rot. Good for the kingdom is the product of being in it and on it and potent because Christ is first in your life, which is why Jesus says in this section, you better count the cost. Being a Christian involves cost. You're going to pick him over everything. That's costly. Over your possessions, over your passions, over your family and most important relations. Engaged constructively in culture is critical to influencing the culture. Prioritizing Christ Christ's first discipleship makes you tasty, salty, and impactfully influential. But gentlemen, you got to be in it, and you got to be on it to influence it. And this is an observation, and I travel a lot. Christians are discouraged, and they're retreating. They're bumper, bunkering, and they're bumpering. I was in uh, Anchorage, Alaska last year for a... Uh, conference and my wife and I my wife got to go and so we the church uh, housed us at uh, I, don't, I don't remember the name of the hotel but it was on Tudor Avenue in Anchorage and uh, it was really a nice place to stay and what really made it special for me is at the corner of the parking lot not in the parking lot but adjacent to it was a Starbucks <laughs> and that's how I like to start my day and uh, I thought, man, how convenient. So first morning, 
And listen, at that time of year in Alaska, morning came fast because dark was just a sliver of the evening. It got dark really late and it got bright really early. So I made my way out of the hotel and beelined across the parking lot for my get start, start the day uh, formula, which is a venti pike with uh, lots of sugar and cream. And uh, I headed over to this Starbucks and this was different than any Starbucks I'd ever seen. This uh, Starbucks was adorned in rainbows. The pillars outside were wrapped in rainbow streamers. The drive-through had a rainbow blanket. When you went in, it was like they were having a rainbow birthday party. They had rainbow flags hanging from end to end. All the baristas but one had a rainbow mask. And let me tell you what they weren't celebrating. God's promise of preservation. This was not the celebration of God's promise to not flood the world again, but this was the celebration and promotion of cultural perversion. This was the flood of perversion being promoted. This was Rainbow Month, late June, in Alaska, and they were making it clear that that's what they wanted to promote. And so I went into the Starbucks, and I don't know if anybody a Starbucks person besides me, because some people roll their eyes and say Starbucks is just not well, good I, enough. I, uh, I quit going there when they started supporting BLM. Oh, you did? Okay. Well, you would have definitely not gone into this one. <laughs> At least I don't think you would. But I went in. And Starbucks has a shtick. Basically, they want to know your name. Hi, what's your name? I'm Harry. They'll give you their name. I'm Mary. And they write your name on the cup. And then you tell them what you want, and they put that on the cup. And then you wait for your drink, and when your drink is ready, what do they do? Harry, your drink is ready. You go pick up your drink. That's how it works. It's the kind of the good neighbor community vibe. This Starbucks, not only did the barista not look me in the face, or in the eye, they didn't ask for my name. It was, what do you want? Venti Pike, Horsplenda, and cream. I had to go stand against the wall because it was COVID. And when my drink was ready, it was Venti Pike, Horsplenda, and cream. It was the coldest Starbucks I'd ever, Starbucks I'd ever been in by way of personality and relationship. So I got my drink. And I started out of the Starbucks, and before I got out the door, I was Googling Christian coffee shops near me. <laughs> right? I, I, I don't like that vibe. This place was oppressive. I don't like their music. I don't like what they're promoting. I don't like anything about this. And then this convic convicting thought, like a flash from heaven, Harry, what this place needs, you alone can provide. This has a neon sign that says corruption. What does corruption need? What does the manure pile need? Salt. So for the next five days when I was in Alaska, Anchorage, Alaska, every morning sitting in the lobby, the, the lounge area with the tables, 
doing my normal routine. It wasn't for, like, I'm a spiritual guy. It's the Bible open reading and praying for every one of those people. And I also took pictures with my phone so I could remember their names. And I was determined. I'm not a stalker. I didn't take their pictures to stalk. I was taking their picture to remember their name. And then when I spoke on Sunday at Anchorage Grayson Church in uh, Anchorage, Alaska, I said to the congregation, I told them that story, and I said, I need your help. Because you've heard that not worth a grain of salt. You know what that means? There's not enough salt. I'm a grain. So I asked them, wherever they buy coffee, to give it up for the next month and go to the Starbucks on Tudor Avenue and show up, prayed up, acting like salt acts in an effort to influence a corrupt, a corrupt institution, a corrupt a business in a community that was injuring the community. There's a proverb I ran into the righteous man considers the house of the wicked, turning it to ruin. Salty Christians ruin unsalty places. So I'm encouraging you to engage intentionally and purposefully in order to affect a world that desperately needs your influence, promoting what is good and inhibiting and ruining what is bad. Engaged, not disengaged. Now listen, I'm not special. I don't wanna come off as some kind of spiritually pious Christian. I want to say that I was tempted to do what I think every single Christian is tempted to do. It's find some place that I want to be. We congregate together and we should. Being together at church, gathering together like this, it's crucial, it's critical. Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. It matters. Essential church matters. But I'll tell you what else matters. The Christians getting out of that bubble and engaging a culture that won't see Christ unless they see him in you. This is choosing to engage what's hard to engage because you bring something that no one else can bring. Turn over to Titus. Let me give you a little, I gave you a personal illustration. I wanna give you a biblical one. Someone has said, you're not to identify with the culture or isolate from the culture, but you're to have influence in the culture. And in order to do that, I'm going to give you something to think about coming out of this little epistle of Paul to Titus. You need to win them. You need to ruin them by praying for them and engaging them, inhibiting them and promoting what is good in the face of what is not good. And you need to win them by the character and quality of your life. I'm going to give you a biblical example as we kind of finish up this tonight. Paul to Titus. Titus is on the island of Crete in the Mediterranean. The mission is to appoint elders and to instruct the church. The character of the culture on the island of Crete is described in verse 12 of chapter 1. 
one of themselves, referring to the Cretans, a prophet of their own. This is Epimenides of Gnosis. He said this 600 BC. So this is 600 plus years before Paul quoted Epimenides. One of their own prophets, prophet of their own, said, quote, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And under the inspiration of scripture, Paul says this testimony is true. So in the culture that Titus is commissioning elders and communicating to the church, it's a corrupt culture. Liars, killers, and gluttons. Liars, always lying, evil beast is ruthless, has the idea of, of uh, animals that are, are ruthless and brutal. So there's violence. Think our culture. Violence in the cities, violence in the communities, headlines, somebody shooting somebody, somebody stabbing somebody, somebody's heart. That's our culture. That's their culture. And then freeloaders, lazy gluttons. They want something for nothing. Satiating their attitudes. That's the culture. And I just want you to know what the background is to whom... Paul is going to tell Titus, this is how you're to behave as churchmen. So go down to verse 14 of chapter 2, and we'll pick up the dialogue there. And there's lots good to be said as Paul coaches the people of God to behave in a sensible and Christ-honoring way. But at the end of verse 13, the subject is Christ Jesus. So you're to give glory, the glory of your great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. So he's going to appear in great glory. The reference in the subject is Christ Jesus. Verse 14, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us. You know what that is? Redeem, redemption. That's your favorite word, the name of your church. Who gave himself for us in the redemptive act of the cross, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed, and purify, here's the key word, purify for himself a people for his own possession. So the redeemed are purified people. Salt, purity. And watch this. A purified people for his own possession. In other words, he's living his life out through you because you belong to him. Now watch the end of verse 14. Zealous for good works. Energized for good works. Deeds is the word energeo, stuff you do. It's not good intentions. It's actually good activity. It's work, energeo, your energy, effort. It's something you do. The word good, there's two words, Greek words for good in the Bible, agathos and kalos. Agathos is practical and beneficial. This is kalos, which means it's not only practical and beneficial, it's virtual. So virtuous, so sacrificial, it's inspiration. Kalos deeds are inspiring, so people are moved by the virtue and the value of it. It's so beautiful, it's so significant that people are inspired by it. It's good at a whole nother level. In other words, when people see it, they're moved. Be zealous for that. 
verse 1, chapter 3. Remind them, Paul to Titus, tell the people of God, remind them to be subject to rulers, that's respectful to authorities, to be obedient. Now look at this. To be ready for every good deed. So zealous for good deeds and prepared for good deeds. Look over at verse 8. This is a trustworthy statement. What he's been saying about what they should be and do and the gospel that saves. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God may be careful to engage in good deeds. Now watch this sentence. These things, this good deed doing, these things are good and profitable for men. Good deeds are profitable for men. Now notice it doesn't just say saved men. Even unsaved men are benefited because good deeds done to honor Christ, zealous for Christ, careful to be done for Christ, point to Christ. Look at verse 14. And let our people also learn to engage in good deeds. What does that mean? To meet pressing needs that they may not be unfruitful. Fruitfulness is tied to good deeds. So how are you going to affect, affect and influence a corrupt culture? You tell God's people to get after it when it comes to good deeds. See a need, meet a need. Be ready for it, be engaged, win them by doing good to them. Look at verse 3. Or verse 2, rather. Chapter 3. Good deeds, and I'm going to add another word. Good attitudes. Be ready for every good deed to malign no one. To be uncontentious. To be gentle. Showing every consideration for all men. And I'm boiling all that down to one idea. Good attitudes. Don't malign people with unkind words. Be perfect. One translation says, be perfectly courteous to all men. Listen, gentlemen, if there's anybody ought to be gracious and kind, it's a Christian. And if you love those who love you, Jesus says, what is that? Even the Gentiles who don't know God how to look, know how to love people who love them. What distinguishes a Christian is when ungodly attitudes are deserved, godly attitudes are promoted and presented. Perfectly courteous to all men, maligning nobody, gentle, showing every consideration. And then look at verse 3. Why would you do that? Because you used to be like that. Look at verse 3. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hating, hateful and hating one another. But verse 4. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. All right, now, now catch this. 
The reason you're supposed to be gracious to them is because you know what it's like to be like them. And you were messed up like they're messed up. But God in his mercy fixed you up. Therefore, you ought to be nice to them. Because you know what it was like to be them. And you received a merciful blessing whereby God in his amazing goodness and grace changed your life. Which introduces the third good thing. Good deeds, good attitudes, and good news. Because what this says is the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared. Who would that be? The person and work of Jesus Christ. God saved us. The word save, sozo, means to rescue, deliver. And here's another thing it does. It heals and changes. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration. Listen, the reason you get washed is not because somebody cleans you up from the outside. You're remade. Regeneration means, it's, the word would be born again. Remade, recreated. So you're not reformed, you're regenerated. You're transformed and cleansed because of the miracle of the new birth. You're not just cleaned up, you're changed. God did that for you. You need to communicate the good news that you've received to those who need what you needed. This is a corrupt culture, an impure culture. They need to be washed. And then the renewing of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit is the regenerating work of God. He pours out, verse 6, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Being justified by his grace, that's be declared righteous. By his grace, not by your work, we be, we've been made heirs that we might be heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I'm telling you, this is a trustworthy statement. This statement needs to be shared. This is the transforming gospel. Gentlemen, let me summarize it this way. You're to be a picture of purity so they know what right and wrong looks like. In the way you talk, the way you walk, your attitudes your motives, and you're to bring a kind of influence on a corrupt culture because of the good deeds, the good attitudes, and the good news that you possess that's changed you, you're living proof, and they desperately need, and what, need what you have. God, you were messed up, God fixed you up. Share what God did for you so that they can enjoy the transforming work that only God can do by his mercy and grace. Listen, you're the steward of truth. You possess the knowledge of the gospel of grace. You know you can't earn your way to heaven. You know that Jesus Christ did for you out of his abundance of goodness and mercy what you couldn't do for yourself. It's a gift. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. It's not by works lest any man should boast. It's God's amazing grace. You know that gift's available. They don't. Good news. Can you say amen to that? Amen. So win them. 
Number three, and I'll hurry, these last two are shorter. Number three, third quality of salt involves pleasure. You're to be a provider of pleasure as a pleasing, a pleasing seasoning. Listen, you know this, salt is a seasoning. It makes food better. Properly dosed, I talked to Peter today, he's a, into <laughs> cooking things, and he's, a little bit of salt makes food, I forget the word, pop, you know, it's, pop's my word, he said something different, it, it, it brings out the flavor. Salt promotes a satisfying savor, it makes things tasty, not tasteless. I bet you don't know this verse in the Bible, I didn't. Job 6.6, 6. listen to Job. Job asked, is tasteless food eaten without salt? Or is there flavor or taste in the white of an egg? You know the answer to that. There is no flavor. <laughs> you got to salt it to eat it. No matter how good it is for you, it needs seasoning to be enjoyable. Egg whites are good for you. You need, they need help, right? <laughs> Listen, let me put it this way. The third way a Christian is called and charged to change the world is by acting as the seasoning of life. An addition to life that makes life better. A Christian's life is to bring hope to a depressed world. Comfort to a hurting world. Peace to a worried and angry world. Real joy to a vain, shallow, frustrated, and addicted world. Clarity and sense to a confused and chaotic and seemingly meaningless world. You know what Christians are? They're to bring life to a dying world. Your lives and mine are to sparkle with a vivid quality of life. We're to be diffusers of joy, bringing pleasure to the reality of life in a fallen world. Listen, you're to high concentrate seasoning. You need to be in it. You need to be on it. Because there are a lot of folks that don't think life is worth living. If you're a part of a neighborhood, it ought to be better. If you're part of a business, it ought to be more fun and satisfying to work there. If you're part of a team, it ought to be more enjoyable to play on that team. If you're a part of a community or group or a committee, it ought to be a better committee. Paul says as captives of Christ, we are to bring the sweet aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. We're the fragrance of God. To the one we're an odor of death and demise, to the other we're the fragrance that brings life. Constantine made Christianity the religion of the Roman Empire. His successor was named Julian. The Emperor Julian, when he assumed the rule of Rome, endeavored to bring back the old gods. His reasoning was driven by this observation the observation of Christians and those who practiced it. And I'm going to quote Julian. Why we're going back to the old pagan gods abandoning Christianity. Have you looked at Christians closely, he says? Hollow-eyed, 
pale-cheeked, flat-breasted all. They brood their lives away. The sun shines for them, but they don't see it. The earth offers them its fullness, but they desire it not. All their desire is to renounce and to suffer that they may come to die, end quote. Let me bottom line. As Julian saw it, Christianity took the life out of life. Oliver Wendell Holmes, a Supreme Court justice, he was a physician. He said, I might have entered the ministry if certain Christians I knew had not looked and acted so much like undertakers. End quote. Listen, all I'm arguing for is you're the salt of the earth. And if you're in it, you're on it. It ought to taste better because it is better. Fourthly and finally, as the salt of the earth, you're to be the provoker of thirst and the passion for God. The fourth characteristic of salt is that salt makes you thirsty. My family likes Chinese food. Right up the street from the church I pastored for 27 years is New China Restaurant. After the two services in the morning, my family would come back to my office. We would order takeout Chinese. By the time we got there, Sam would have it ready. Mongolian Delight, that was mine. Sesame Chicken, that was Karen. My children both liked um, uh, sweet and sour pork and chicken. We would enjoy that time. It was our tradition. It was great Chinese food. My family would go home. I'd prepare for the evening service, and I would drink eight glasses of water. <laughs> That is an exaggeration, but not much. Because it's so salty. <laughs> Salt makes you thirsty. And you'll get this. In like manner as a Christian, you ought to make, as the salt of the earth, people thirsty not for H2O, but for the water of life. They ought to want what you have because they see something they don't. So I want to conclude tonight by encouraging you to be an influence. Engaging is intentional, impactful influence simply by being what you are in the world in which God has sovereignly placed you so that the people around you can benefit what only you can bring. You're the salt of the earth, unless you're not. And I want to encourage you be a blessing wherever you are. You are not impotent, gentlemen. You're not. You get salt in anything, you know it's there. Can you say amen to that? Amen. Father, thank you for the opportunity tonight to consider the potential to purify places, to preserve places, to promote pleasure, to prompt passion for God, to make people thirsty, for the water of life and the reality that we enjoy that they need. And I'm asking for these men, redeemed South Bay, Torrance and communities adjacent, that these men would be powerful and potent and the world would be better because they're in it. And I pray that you would make them 
more capable of being what they are so that their life is maximized for the glory of God. In Jesus' name I pray.